You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 364 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, with the last show, we started talking about the third day of the battle, and we looked at how first thing that morning, the morning of July 3rd, 1863, the fighting flared up once again on Culp's Hill, And we also talked about how Robert E. Lee discovered that morning that Longstreet was unprepared to carry out, and not at all enthusiastic about, Lee's plan to hit the federal left again on July 3rd. In fact, Longstreet again proposed sliding around the federal left, but Lee again shot down that idea. No doubt a bit irritated by this point, by Longstreet's continued obstinacy, Lee pointed at the enemy line across the way on Cemetery Ridge and told Longstreet, one imagines with some emphasis, quote, the enemy is there and I am going to strike him. But with Longstreet not prepared to carry out his part of Lee's original plan for the day, and with the skies brightening and as Dick Yule's battle for Culp's Hill continued to rage, It was now apparent to a surely disappointed Robert E. Lee that he would have to fashion an entirely new plan of attack for Longstreet's part of the fight. While Lee came up with Plan B, with a new plan of attack against the Federal Center, and then set about preparing for it, Yule's troops continued to battle for Culp's Hill. It was now, I think, about half past nine, and ever since four o'clock, the fire of the enemy had been almost continuous, at times tremendous. But all the efforts of the enemy failed to dislodge us. Then came General Yule's order to assume the offensive and assail the crest of Culp's Hill. Both General Stewart and General Daniel, who now came up with his brigade to support the movement, strongly disapproved of making the assault and well might they despair of success in the face of such difficulties. The works to be stormed were a double line of entrenchments, one above the other, and each filled with troops. 
In moving to the attack, we were exposed to enfilading fire from the woods on our left flank, besides the double line of fire which we had to face in front, and a battery of artillery posted on a hill to our left rear opened upon us at short range. What wonder, then, that Stuart was reluctant to lead his men into such a slaughter pen, from which he saw there could be no issue but death and defeat. But he gallantly obeyed without delay the orders he received. He made his men leap the breastworks and form in line of battle on the other side, galled all the time by a brisk fire from the enemy. Then drawing his sword, he gave the command, Charge bayonets! and moved forward on foot with his men into the jaws of death. Lieutenant Randolph McKim, Staff, Stewart's Brigade, Johnson's Division, Ewell's Corps, Army of Northern Virginia. O God, what a fire greeted us, and the death shriek rends the air on every side, but on the gallant survivors pressed, closing up the dreadful gaps as fast as they were made. At this moment I felt a violent shock and found myself instantly stretched upon the ground. I had experienced the feeling before and knew what it meant, but I could not tell where I was struck. In the excitement I felt not the pain, and resting upon my elbow, anxiously watched the struggling column. Column, did I say? A column no longer, but the torn and scattered fragments of one. Major William Worthington Goldsboro, 1st Maryland Battalion, Stewart's Brigade, Army of Northern Virginia. As y'all will recall, Rich talked last week about the start of the Confederate attack on Culp's Hill, which took place that morning after the Federal artillery bombardment. Remember, it was the Federal foot soldiers who were supposed to move out right after the guns stopped firing, but instead the Confederate infantry beat them to the punch, and it had been Allegheny Johnson's rebels who surged forward first. That first Confederate push up the steep slopes had been easily repulsed by the well-entrenched Federal defenders, and the two sides then settled in for a savage firefight that enveloped Culp's Hill in thick smoke. At 8 a.m., with the contest here entering its fourth hour, Allegheny Johnson tried again, ordering another surge up the hillside. The Stonewall Brigade, commanded by James Bulldog Walker, reinforced Marilyn Stewart's assault on the lower summit, while to their right, Jesse Williams' Louisianans and Edward O'Neill's Alabamans advanced against the federal defenses on the upper reaches of Culp's. However, it didn't take long for this attack to also founder, with the rebels falling back in what seemed like a matter of minutes after suffering heavy casualties. O'Neill summed up the futility of this effort by reporting his brigade, quote, charged time and again up to their works, but were every time compelled to retire. Many gallant men were lost. The Federals were well protected by their formidable line of works, built of logs, stones, and earth, and they kept up a relentless fire of musketry. 
Division Commander Geary shifted several regiments from Candy's and Kane's brigades to the upper summit, and soon a brigade of men from the 6th Corps arrived to lend a hand. Several 1st Corps units were also here, adding the weight of their musket fire to the fight. The Federal regiments on the hilltop worked out a deadly efficient system of swapping positions on the front line. You see, once a regiment's ammunition was used up, the men would fall back to a sheltered gully some 50 yards to the rear, where they would catch their breath and refill their cartridge boxes, while fresh units stepped up to take their place on the firing line. This allowed the defenders to maintain a constant fire on the Confederates. Meanwhile, on the other side of the lines, members of Allegheny Johnson's staff, in order to resupply ammunition to the Confederate troops while under fire, loaded cartridge boxes into blankets, which were then slung from poles and lugged up the hillside to the men, who were hunkered down behind trees and rocks, stubbornly exchanging fire with the Yankee defenders. But it was a thoroughly unequal contest. Because of their fortifications and their strong position, casualties among the Federal defenders were comparatively light, although many of the injuries they did suffer were wounds to the head and upper body, since those were typically the only portions exposed to the incoming Confederate fire. After the battle, the soldiers of the 149th New York of Pap Green's brigade took pride as they counted no fewer than 81 bullet holes in their flag, which they kept flying above their position. The flagstaff had also been shot in two, although during the heat of battle, Color Sergeant William Lilly spliced it back together with wood splints and leather haversack straps. After more than five hours of intense action on Culp's Hill, Yule ordered another Confederate assault to go forward. It seems Robert E. Lee's revised orders to Yule that morning had said that Longstreet's part in the day's attacks would be delayed until 10 a.m. And so, with that timetable in mind, Yule ordered another advance. However, as it happened, Longstreet was nowhere near ready to begin his attack at 10 o'clock, but Lee didn't notify Yule of this fact. Since Longstreet wasn't attacking simultaneously at 10 a.m., that meant the Confederate assault on the well-fortified Federal lines at Culp's Hill, which by this time was seen as all but hopeless by the troops involved, only became even more pointless. When Dick Yule ordered another advance, Allegheny Johnson protested, as did Brigade Commanders Marilyn Stewart and Junius Daniel, who believed that the enemy position was so strong that, quote, it could not have been carried by any force. End quote. But Yule didn't cancel the order to advance, so the attack would go ahead. Stewart's men were ordered to sweep forward from their captured entrenchments on Culp's lower summit, while Walker and Daniel, to Stewart's right, prepared their men for another assault on the enemy positions on the upper reaches of the hill. Major Goldsboro of the 1st Maryland Battalion in Stewart's command whose quote I shared at the top of this segment, later wrote that it was, quote, nothing less than murder to send men into that slaughter pen. The Confederate officers and men steeled themselves to advance once again into that storm of Yankee lead. 
At about 10 a.m., they swept forward. Randolph McKim of Maryland Stewart's staff, and whose quote I shared at the top of this segment, later remembered they were hit with the, quote, most fearful fire I ever encountered, and my heart sickened with the sight of so many gallant men sacrificed. Of the three attacks the Confederates launched against Culp's Hill this morning, this one seemed to be the one carried forward with the most determination. But like the previous two, it also faltered in the face of the Federal's strong defensive fire and the formidable nature of their position. Marilyn Stewart reportedly wept when he saw the destruction of his brigade, sobbing, My poor boys! My poor boys! In his book, Confrontation at Gettysburg, John Michael Hoptak writes that during this final Confederate assault on Culp's Hill, the soldiers of both sides watched as a dog raced frantically back and forth between the opposing lines, caught up in the whirlwind of human destruction until it was struck down and killed. After the battle, as the Federal troops gathered up the wounded and buried the dead, they discovered the dog's body. Brigadier General Thomas Kane, whose Ohioans and Pennsylvanians manned this sector of the 12th Corps line during the ferocious and bloody combat for the hill, directed that the dog receive a proper burial, since he said it was, quote, the only Christian being on either side. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The rebels are in a hot place. Our artillery is dropping shells among them with fearful rapidity. The musketry is sharp and incessant. Every tree is riddled with bullets, and their dead and wounded lie thick among the rocks. A combined movement is, after some consultation, arranged to be made to dislodge them. General Ruger received orders to try the enemy on the right of the line with two regiments, and if practicable, to dislodge them. He sent Lieutenant Snow to Colonel Colgrove with an order to advance skirmishers at that point 
and if the enemy was not found in too great force, to advance two regiments and drive him out. This order, as Colonel Colgrove reports, was to, quote, advance his line immediately, end quote. His own brave regiment, the 27th Indiana, and the 2nd Massachusetts were at the point on the line from which this assault must be made. They were ordered to go in. The verbal order was given to Colonel Mudge. Are you sure it is the order? asked he, looking at the frowning rocks behind which the enemy were packed. Yes. Well, said this brave gentleman, it is murder, but it is the order. Up, men, over the works. Forward, double quick. In an instant, the two regiments rose and with the cheer sprang over their breastworks. They advanced into a perfect hail of balls, men and officers falling at every step, but none save the sorely wounded turning back. Colonel Mudge of the 2nd Massachusetts, a noble gentleman, fell dead in crossing that fatal meadow. The 27th Indiana on the right was terribly exposed, not only from the rocks in front, but from the flank, and after losing 23 men killed, eight officers and 79 men wounded, the regiment, seeing how hopeless was the effort to carry the position, fell back under orders. The 2nd Massachusetts pressed on. It was distressing to see and not be able to give them aid. Lieutenant Edwin E. Bryant, 2nd Wisconsin Infantry, Iron Brigade, 1st Corps, Army of the Potomac. Despite their valiant efforts, Ewell's Confederates were unable to make a dent in the strong federal position on Culp's Hill, and each of their attacks were turned back by the Union defenders. The only setback the Federals in this sector suffered that morning occurred early in the contest, when, just before 7 a.m., Henry Slocum ordered an advance across the open meadow near Spangler's Spring, near the southern base of Culp's Hill. Believing the rebel line there to be weak and wavering, Slocum instructed Thomas Ruger, then commanding Alpheus Williams' division, to advance a line of skirmishers and find out if the enemy position was indeed vulnerable. Ruger then passed along these orders to Colonel Silas Colgrove, whose brigade anchored the far right flank of the 12th Corps line. Through some miscommunication, or through a simple bungling of the orders, Instead of advancing skirmishers to test the strength of the, of the enemy position, Colgrove ordered the 2nd Massachusetts and 27th Indiana forward to attack the Confederates across the way. When Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mudge, commanding the 2nd Massachusetts, received Colgrove's instructions, he asked, Are you sure that is the order? When he was assured that it was, Mudge looked across the open meadow toward the enemy lines and replied, Well, it is murder, but it is the order. So, with no skirmishers having been sent forward to test the enemy's strength, the forlorn Confederate attack commenced. Mudge, a Harvard graduate, led his men over a low stone wall, and with a yell the Bay Staters advanced, joined by the Hoosiers to their right. They charged into a tempest of musket fire, 
delivered by Stuart's rebels to their front on the lower summit of Culp's Hill, and by extra Billy Smith's Virginians on their right flank over across Rock Creek. The blue lines melted rapidly under the withering fire. Mudge was shot through the neck and killed, while five men carrying the regimental colors were struck down in rapid succession, either killed or wounded. By the time it was over, the 2nd Massachusetts had lost more than 40% of its men, while the 27th Indiana suffered over 30% casualties. After nearly seven hours of sustained combat on the morning of July 3rd, the fighting on Culp's Hill at last subsided just after 11 a.m. Allegheny Johnson, believing the Yankees to be, quote, too securely entrenched and in too great numbers to be dislodged by the force at my command, end quote, ordered his men to fall back. By noon, the battered and exhausted Confederates were back east of Rock Creek, and the Federals had maintained possession of Culp's Hill. Many of the attackers, trapped between the lines and unable to pull back without being shot, had no choice but to surrender. The 7th Ohio took 78 prisoners, the 122nd New York, 75, and the 137th New York, 52. The right flank of the Army of the Potomac's fish hook line of defense was secure, as was the vital Baltimore Pike, the Federals' main line of supply, just a few hundred yards behind Culp's Hill. Afterward, when he reflected on the fighting for the hill, Alpheus Williams said, quote, The wonder is that the rebels persisted so long in an attempt that the first half hour must have told them was useless. Although it's impossible to know with any degree of certainty, Confederate casualties that Friday morning on Culp's Hill are believed to have totaled anywhere between 2,400 and 3,000 men, or nearly 30% of the 9,000 engaged. During the fighting for the lower summit, there had been a deadly meeting of neighbors when the Confederates of the 1st Maryland Battalion of Stewart's Brigade locked horns with the Federals of the 1st Maryland Eastern Shore Regiment of Lockwood's 12th Corps Brigade. Both units had been recruited in the same section of the border state, and soldiers in both units had relatives and friends serving in the other. In fact, cousins served in the opposing color guards. After the battle, Colonel James Wallace, commander of the Eastern Shore Federals, wrote, quote, the 1st Maryland Confederate Regiment met us and were cut to pieces. We sorrowfully gathered up many of our old friends and acquaintances and had them carefully and tenderly cared for. While many Confederate units were cut to pieces in the fighting for Culp's Hill, Federal casualties, on the other hand, numbered about 1,000, or less than 10% of the total number engaged. The men of Pap Green's brigade celebrated their well-earned victory with three rousing cheers. However, scanning the awful scene left in the aftermath of the fighting, a devastated landscape, the lifeless forms of the dead, and the hundreds of helpless wounded men, a soldier in the 123rd New York observed that, quote, none but demons can delight in war.
No doubt that was true. However, it was also unfortunately true that there would be much more fighting ahead on July 3rd to further delight those demons. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Gettysburg Campaign in Numbers and Losses by J. David Petruzzi and Stephen A. Stanley. The subtitle of this book is Synopsis, Orders of Battle, Strengths, Casualties, and Maps, June 9th to July 14th, 1863. So it's not really probably... A book you want to sit down with if you're looking for a story-driven narrative of the campaign and battle along the lines of Stephen Sears or Noah-Andre Trudeau, but we found it to be an invaluable research tool. It's definitely our go-to resource for checking out officers and units and strengths and casualties and especially orders of battle. Plus, the maps by Stephen Stanley are, of course, excellent and worth the price of admission just for those. And we're always happy to give a plug for one of Mr. Petruzzi's books, who is from the same small town in Pennsylvania as my dad, and where my 94-year-old grandma still lives. So that's The Gettysburg Campaign in Numbers and Losses by J. David Petruzzi and Stephen A. Stanley. Don't forget, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the podcast website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way, just like Curtis P., Ken K., Victor W., Michael L., Al, Vicki F., and Arthur W. And shooting us a donation all the way from the Netherlands was Ethemios. And we apologize since we're sure we butchered your name. Oh, well, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.